Welcome back to the Bass Edge Studios. And thanks for joining us here again today on The Edge, presented by Keelguard. Guard your boat against grinding sand, abrasive rocks, and concrete boat ramps with Keel Guard Keel Protector. I'm Steve Brigman, and I'm joined today by America's favorite fishing buddy, Aaron Martin. America's favorite fishing buddy, where in the world do you come up with this stuff? You kind of need to calm down over there, Steve. <laughs> I'm just a little excited. Man, we got a great show today. You know, you should be, because we've got Kevin Van Dam and we've got Dr. Jay McNamara to talk about all those psychological principles that you need help with. Boy, both heavy hitters. It's a special day, again here on The Edge. So hold on tight. Here we go. Get her like that, boy. Good job. I don't know of any other sport that offers the challenge that bass fishing does. That's full contact fishing right Man. there. Conditions are going to be tough, but we'll catch them. This, this is a good place. It's all about figuring it out. What do you think of that, huh? Yeah. Oh, yeah. oh did you see yes, that? Yes, I saw that. That was awesome. <laughs> Holy cow. You're listening to The Edge. Everything bass fishing from the Bass Edge Studios. High above Table Rock Lake in the Missouri Ozarks. Steve, I've, I've got to ask the question. I've been kind of sitting here noticing what in the world is going on with your glasses and all this stuff that's hanging off the side of them. You know, I broke my glasses and I had visions of how this was going to turn out if I tried to epoxy them or glue them. I knew I'd probably render them useless after that. But then I got the great idea to use my fly tying stuff and I've used fly tying thread to fix my glasses. They're just coming a little unraveled because I couldn't find my zap it to finish it off. Well, th- I think that's kind of where you first went wrong you know you had these visions uh that's the first problem but uh, anyway speaking of you know while you're tying stuff whatever happened to kind of those jigs you remember that you know you were going to run past kathy and supposedly uh Give me some more of those jigs that we need for drop shot. <laughs> yeah, I figured we'd, that's where this would go. I'm a busy man, you know. I'll tell you what, I need to teach you to tie them jigs. You're kind of like my wife. If you don't want to do something, he's like, well, you're much better at it than I am. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm, I'm going to leave you to that all alone because I know as soon as Kathy hears this episode, there will be repercussions for that comment. But, uh, no, I, I would look forward to, to tying stuff. It's just... Uh, you know, I'd rather be fishing than working. And if I can get you to time, you're the master tire, Steve. You're just so good at it. That sounds like my wife talking about chili. You know, it's <laughs> like, who's going to make the chili? Well, you make it better than I do. So you're going to learn to tie them daggum jigs. But uh, anyway, I said earlier I was excited, and I am excited because we're getting so very close to adding a new member to the Martin Fishing Team. Yes, we are, and I tell you what, I am uh, I'm excited, I'm a little nervous. Of course, you know that we're not going to find out uh, what we're having. We're going to keep that surprise, I think, one of the very few surprises that's left in life. But uh, I keep joking with her. I said, I hope that it's actually born before my birthday, because, you know, the original due date is actually on my birthday. I'm hoping that it's born before that so that I can actually say I'm only 38 instead of 39 when it's born. Well, I know, so we're talking... Next two or three weeks, and we got a big decision to make. Yeah, it's it's literally just right around the corner. You know, we've kind of talked about uh, hashing out all the names because you know when you're not finding out what it is, you got to go be prepared, whether it's a, a boy or a girl. And I have certainly been doing my share. <laughs> yeah, why, why don't uh, why don't 
you care to share a few of those names that you came up with there, Steve? Well, I mean, you know, I thought little baby Beatrice or Beauregard or, <laughs> I don't know, at least we could go political and we could have Mitt Martin or, or, oh, boy. or, or, or whatever. i tell you what, you can't go wrong with Steve. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I think we've kind of been down that road before, so uh, I, th- I think we're just going to leave that at is, as is. But, you know, hey, speaking of kids, Steve, I do want to throw a uh, shout-out. We have with us the Miss Selby's second-grade class from Reed Springs Elementary. So we want to throw a shout-out to them. Thanks to them for kind of tuning us in and, and doing the uh, the technology survey, I guess. Hey, I want to send my shout-out to all the kiddos, and I just want to say use the grammar that you're teaching teaches you and not that you hear Aaron using. <laughs> wow. Okay. Hey, uh, so let's, let's kind of change this topic. But you know, Steve, we've been eagerly anticipating this upcoming show. Um, you know, Kevin's going to be joining us here just shortly. And all kidding aside, you know, kind of my hope is that he doesn't interview at the same pace that he fishes. I think it wears out. I tell you what, I've had a couple of opportunities back in my journalist days uh, to watch him fish. And I'll tell you what, the guy goes at such a pace, it just, it tires me out to watch him. I mean, uh, you got to be in shape to watch this guy fish. Boy, you do. And, you know, speaking of being in shape, I, I think that's one of the things in, in the sport of angling, whether it's from a recreational standpoint or even from a competitive standpoint. When you're in shape, you make better decisions, all right? You're going to feel good. You are able to process, be able to move. Because we all know, you know, you fish with me before, Steve, and you always kind of kid me about how often we move around. But, you know, there's a lot of getting up, getting down. Uh, the other thing is the weather gets cold. You know, you're burning a lot of, of calories. Uh, you want to stay in shape if you have an injury, a shoulder injury or a hand injury or something along those lines, your knees, all of that stuff comes into play. And certainly you don't want an injury to be able to take you out of something that we all like to do so well. You know, that's, that's true. And I, and I know it's hard for young people to look this far down the road, but, you know, just eating right and keeping your weight down so that when you're in your 60s, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm getting there in a hurry here and... You know, you're going to want to fish when when you're my age, you know, and and keep your blood pressure right and be in good shape when you get down the road so you can have a whole lifetime of fishing. I wish I would have even realized that earlier on because, you know, just not only from the physical conditioning standpoint, but also nutrition plays such a huge role. You know, I was always one of those guys that skipped breakfast and, you know, didn't really eat good while I was in the boat. And what I found out was, you know, it's kind of that you roll around to that 12, 1 o'clock hour you don't have any fuel in the tank, uh, you're not going to make any decisions. When you start talking about healthy eating, you remember I've traveled with you. <laughs> but uh, now nah, you, you're so right, and you like to kid me about me being in shape. Let's wait and see when you're my age how good a shape you're in. Although I will give you that uh, those, all those skin moisturizers and facial products that you use probably are a big help. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that comes into play. I guess I guess one could say if if Mary Kay was in the sponsorship business, then we would have a Mary Kay wrapped boat, huh? <laughs> Pink. Yeah, you'd like that, wouldn't you? <laughs> oh, yeah. oh my goodness. Yeah, let's get out of here. We got to go talk to KVD. Absolutely. I see he is on the phone, but uh, let's take a quick break, pay some bills, and we will join Kevin Van Dam next up. You know the importance of protecting your investments, so why use anything other than the toughest keel protector for your boat? Grinding sand, abrasive rocks, and concrete ramps are no match for our patented technology. 
KeelGuard Keel Protectors are made tough and made to stick. Their do-it-yourself installation takes less than an hour, providing the most dependable, most trusted keel protection for your boat, guaranteed for life. So give your boat the performance edge. Put on the protection the pros pick. Keel Guard Keel Protectors. Hey, Edge listeners, this is Terry Backsay. Hi, I'm Jamie Cyphers. I'm Diddy Brower. This is Michael Murphy. Hey, this is Kevin Van Dam, and you're listening to The Edge. If you know anything about professional bass fishing, then you know our next guest with four Bassmaster Classic crowns, seven Angler of the Year trophies, and currently number one in the world bass fishing standings, KVD himself, Kevin Van Dam. Kevin, how are you? Man, I'm doing great, guys. Good to have you here today, Kevin. Well, like Aaron was saying, you've pretty much won it all in this sport. And, you know, us folks that keep up with competitive fishing and we watch those leaderboards, there's just a handful of guys like you who, who are just always at the top. And there's a lot of guys that are up there sometime. Can you talk to our listeners about, uh, you know, what it takes to just maintain that kind of consistency? Well, I can tell you it's not easy. Um, and, I'm, you know, I'm not always there, but uh, I work pretty hard. To, to manage if you if I have a bad tournament you know you don't you don't want it to be too bad you know if you can finish 25th or 30th or something on your bad days you know you're doing pretty good but you know I just I take it real seriously I put um, you know a lot of effort into it and really focus on trying to fish in the moment when I go to these lakes you know to to where you're really following the weather and the seasonal patterns because that's how you truly stay you know on what the fish are, are currently doing is, is just trying to be as open-minded as possible and then you got to be versatile and I, I think growing up in Michigan and fishing you know all over the state where we have a big diversity in water and that, that it really helps to be versatile well you know like our younger anglers speak to them a little bit about this idea of shoring up your consistency as an angler what's involved in that well I think what a lot of people don't really realize is that you know the decisions you make and really the mental aspect of a competition day is a, you know probably the most important factor um, when you're out there I mean these days everybody has really good equipment electronics you know, all the latest lures, technology, they're good casters, you know, they mechanically they can do it. But the bottom line comes down to the decisions that you make and, and the choosing, you know, the technique for the situation and the timing and, and things like that. And, you know, people go out there and, and say, well, shoot, you know, I didn't catch them today. They just weren't biting. Well, I can promise you they're always biting. You just got to figure out the right, you know, little intricacies in the in the pattern or the retrieve or or your presentation to get these fish to to commit to your bait. I'm not saying that that I'm perfect at it because there's lots of times, you know, where well, I'll miss the mark a little bit myself, you know, and, and it's just about keeping an open mind and listening to, you know, the fish when you're out there on the water. And what I mean by that is, you know, if you're throwing spinnerbaits and shallow bushes and things like that and, and they're just coming up there and bumping it or nipping it or, or you're very barely hooking them, you know, maybe there's a better technique or a better presentation that you can be more efficient with. And because the bottom line is, is, Gosh, when you get around them these days, you've you got to be able to, to do the best you can and, and make sure that you capitalize on every opportunity you get because the competition sure is, you know, I mean, somebody's always got it figured out, you know, out of the field. You know, if you can count on if there's 100 top pros out there, even if it's tough for quite a few guys, somebody's always catching them. Kevin, you bring up as far as kind of staying abreast and on top of the weather conditions. You know, here in 2012, certain parts of the country, we've seen uncharacteristically warm 
temperatures. You know, normally this is the time of year that, you know, we would say spring is quickly approaching. Um, and really, for a lot of us, it's our favorite time or favorite season to actually be on the water. But it can really present some special challenges. You know, I see where kind of La Nina is supposed to bring a, a wet spring in many parts of the country this year. Share with us really your approach to fishing a lake that has a lot of, of new water that's coming into it. Well, you bring up a really good point in that it is important. And, you know, I do it for my tournaments, but even a weekend fisherman that, you know, that that isn't even fishing tournaments, you know, you can follow the weather and the weather patterns before you, you know, you're going to go, you know, I mean, that whole week you're looking forward to Saturday or Sunday going fishing. So you can follow those weather patterns and see how things might develop, you know, one way or the other, whether it's, you know, a system that that brings good conditions for fishing or, or a cold front that could be bad. But, you know, when you do get a big influx of water like that, probably the toughest fishing condition there is in early spring is high, muddy, cold water. And, you know, you want to try to get to where the lake is going to be the most stable. So typically in reservoirs, you're going to be near the dam to get away from that muddy, cold water. So it's going to be clearer there. Water is going to be more stable on that end. And those fish right there are generally going to be a little easier to catch under those conditions. Now, as things warm up, you know, the exact opposite is true. You know, dirty water will put fish real shallow. It puts them real tight to cover. And so it makes it perfect for, you know, throwing a spinnerbait or flipping, you know, where these target-oriented presentations as it warms up. And that can change in a matter of a day or two. And, you know, conditions going from really tough to really favorable, you know, on the weather that you can get. You know, you get one sunny day when the water's cold and muddy and, you know, where things start to stabilize out and all of a sudden, you know, all the big ones in the lake are right up on the bank. Is it safe to say then in that early spring condition like we were referring to and we're down, let's say, closer to the dam, are we relating more towards vertical structure where the fish are just moving up and down in the water column or <clears throat> is that going to get thrown out the window? No, um, you know, that's always a good rule of thumb for sure. The The one thing that I always try to do is really pay attention to the moon face because on each, even well before the bass spawn, the bass are affected by that moon. They're thinking about the spawn, you know, a month or even two months before, and they'll move adjacent to to spawning flat. So, yeah, if you can find a steeper channel swing bank or, you know, something, you know, more vertical cover close to a spawning flat, you know, could be something as simple as a bridge with riprap on it. You know, it's got deep water access, goes all the way out to the creek, and then behind it, shallow water. Those fish will stage up on the corners of that bridge or the rock or, again, a deeper channel swing that's closer to these spawning flats. So the biggest thing you look for in the spring is things that are irregular for the area. And if you can find something where there's just a small stretch of deeper bank or deeper water and then it's got some, you know, good hard bottom near it, you know, rocks or something like that or even wood cover, um, you know, those places like that can be a gold mine. You know, a bunch of fish will, will stage in a very small area. And you can, you know, you can have one of the best days of your life in a situation like that. Well, when we're talking about the challenges of fishing in the spring, of course, one of those is just the constantly changing weather. And Kevin, we've got a listener question today about fishing cold fronts from William in Tower Hill, Illinois. And William writes, I fished three different tournaments with a cold front before each. I was on fish before, but struggled to find them after the front. What tactics should I use? Basically, what should I be thinking? There's only one thing I've learned so far. Fishing protective bays with no wind seems to make a difference. Also, a lot of teams are throwing something white. Any ideas why? 
And that's William from Tower, Illinois. That has a few questions for you there, Kevin. Well, you know, there's lots of variables that you have to look at in every uh, one of those situations, you know. Right off the bat, you know, he said, hey, everybody's throwing something white. And I'm, I'm sure the, the lakes that he's fishing, you know, shed our primary forage. And especially if the water's stained that time of year, you know, it's going to always be a good color. Any Anytime you're fishing a lure that's up off the bottom, uh, something white is going to imitate a shad real well. So that's probably, you know, a big reason for that. That doesn't mean that's the only, you know, the only color to use. You know, I, I fish a lot of crawdad patterns in the spring. Um, if the water's dirty, you know, I just want to make them brighter. You know, the fire red or fire orange type craw patterns in the early spring are, are really good because that's, you know, one of the primary forage that the fish feed on. But if there's a lot of shad in the area, you know, that's what they're going to target too. So you, you have to be aware of that. The biggest thing about cold fronts that I've learned over the years is that people think that it just automatically changes the fish and they move or they leave. And in most cases, unless you have a real abrupt change in their environment around them. You know, the water comes up, the water goes down from those heavy rains we talked about, things like that. Um, the fish can move in a situation like that. But just the cold front itself, where the water levels and clarity stays the same and, you know, the temperature's generally going to drop a little bit, um, those fish don't really tend to move too far, usually just a few feet. And their mood just changes. So after a cold front, you know, I know I got to be more persistent. I got to make multiple presentations to the same target. You know, if you're fishing a lay down tree, you don't just, you know, throw a spinnerbait down at one time. You might have to throw it 10 times. And instead of just real normal pace, maybe you got to slow roll it and bump it through those limbs or, or you got to change to a crankbait or something. And, and again, make multiple, multiple casts to it. But what I generally do is I try with reactionary baits. To use lures that have a lot of action and I can keep in the strike zone for a long time. You know, things like, you know, if the water's a little clear, a jerk bait's hard to beat because you got tremendous amount of fish attracting action to it with that erratic presentation and it stays in the zone for a long time. You know, the same thing happens a little later in the year with throwing top waters around the spawn. You know, a stick bait has a lot of action and you can keep it in close proximity to a cover or where a bass is living. So those types of things are good reactionary baits. And then, you know, I use a lot more vertical presentations. That's where, you know, flip in and pitch in, things like that really come into play. And, and again, you got to think that, hey, I've got to try to trigger these fish into biting. So you want to make multiple casts. You want to use an erratic presentation, even with a jig, instead of just dragging it on the bottom or hopping it real slow, you know, sometimes hopping a little harder, you know, try different things with your presentation, sometimes a little faster, sometimes a little slower, until you get a, a fish to react to it. When you get a bite, boy, it's so important to pay attention to exactly what you were doing, how you were working the bait, how deep, you know, the lure was, so you know where the fish are positioned and in, in what mood um, they were in because if you can find one, chances are there's going to be more bass doing the same thing in that same area. One of the things that you brought up earlier in the interview was decision making, and I think this next question not only am I speaking for myself personally, but I think it would go out as saying for all of the listeners as Bass Edge, making decisions. You know, I think that's one of the hardest decisions on the water is deciding when to give up on a spot and move on. How do you decide? when to move or when to stay? Well, you know, you really got to trust your instincts. And um, this is one of those things where, you know, experience gives you a, a lot of confidence. And, you know, for somebody that's not made those mistakes before and doesn't have a lot of experience, it's pretty tough because we all have been there and all do it. And that's how you learn is by making mistakes. The biggest thing is, is when you try something and it doesn't work out, the next time you're faced with that same scenario, be a little smarter about it and try something different, you know. So it's kind of a something you, you really have to trust your gut on. 
on and, and know your own style. You know, for me, I know that I'm not that guy that just wants to sit there and pound out a spot and try to catch every single fish off of it. I'd rather have 10 spots and rotate amongst them and hope that, you know, I can get a few of the fish on each of them to bite, you know, maybe hit a good spot two or three times in a day instead of just sitting there all day long and just hoping that you can pound it out. I mean, there's no right or wrong answer in that situation. It's it's what you feel the most confident in and, and that you're going to be successful doing is that's the path that I'm going to take. And some days you're right and some days you're wrong. You just want to try to put the odds in your favor. Well, Kevin, we're going to have Rick Clunt on here in a little bit. And here's a question I wanted to ask both of you guys. And I know that you're a hunter like I am. And I just like to hear you talk about which skills do you think translate from one of those sports to the other? Well, if you look around, there is an awful lot of guys that are not just hunters, but are actually pretty good hunters that fish and what it really translates to me is the best fishermen I know are very perceptive they notice things around them in nature little things and those clues that nature can give you while you're out there on the water are the same kind of things you can see you know when you're hunting you know I mean a slight change in the wind direction or or just, you know, noticing that the clouds are thickening. Little things like that are very important to be able to tell, like, subtle weather changes that may change the pattern. You know, seeing bluegills suspended around underneath the dock and what color they are and, you know, and just all kinds of little things like that, whether it's noticing the blue heron standing on a point or sitting up on a tree in the, in the back of a cove, you know. I mean, all those things can give you an idea to the activity level of the fish and, and ideas that you might uh, use to be successful out there in the water. So I think, you know, guys that are very much into hunting and that are very perceptive, they're very aware of what's going on around in their surroundings, and they don't miss those little things. Well, throughout the year, Kevin, and obviously you fish a tremendous amount of, of places, both lakes to rivers, you know, is there one bait that you have tied on more often let's say, than any other bait? Or, you know, possibly maybe there's two or three. And if so, what are they? My style is just more, I'm more of a run-and-gun power-type fisherman where I like to throw faster-moving baits. I throw a lot of horizontal presentation-type lures, you know, spinner baits and jerk baits and crank baits and things like that, where other guys, you know, their confidence may be a jig or a drop shot or a worm or Carolina rig or something like that. It, you know, I'm not afraid to throw anything. You know, one thing I learned a long time ago is don't have a favorite lure. Use a lure that's the most efficient for the conditions that you're faced with. You know, I mean, when you take into account the water clarity and the type of cover that you have and the depth zone and the time of the year and the temperature, you know, I want to pick a lure that's the most efficient with all those variables factored in. Uh, but that being said, my confidence is more in those reactionary type baits than it is in those, you know, finesse type baits when, when conditions get tough. Given all your success at this point in your career, is there a certain water condition out there that you wake up and go, oh, no, man, I hate fishing this stuff? What do you consider the toughest condition to fish out there, and, and how do you approach it? The toughest thing, for sure, is really cold, high, muddy water, especially if it's just still rising or, you know, it's just unstable conditions. I mean, it's just a grind when you ha- when you have something like that, and especially if you got to go out in it when the water's real cold and then the air's cold and, and it's raining you know there's nothing worse than 34 <laughs> degrees and raining and high muddy cold water and you got a tournament that you have to go in you know i mean those are the days that you go gosh i just wish i didn't have to get up this morning and, and do it and, and you know it's going to be a challenge but you know i still try to fish to my strengths and fish the things that i'm going to be successful with and i you know i i use a lot of crankbaits and things like that the big thing there is i know i got to get away from 
current. You know, I mean, if there's water that's really moving, you know, in the backs of creeks or in the upper end of the lake, and it's, if there's a lot of current, it, it just keeps everything stirred up, and, and it's just hard to catch those fish. You, you want to be someplace where that water is at least not moving, so it's starting to filter out a little bit. You know, I mean, um, the dirty water will move the fish shallower. So, you know, I know I'm going to be able to fish a little bit shallower. And I might be able to catch some on a crankbait and things like that. But, you know, you always got to go with your backup baits like a jig, you know, in a situation like that. And, and you just go out there and you know that you're not going to get a lot of bites and just try to grind it out and get a few bites. I mean, that's the days when it's real tough like that. If you can come in with a decent stringer, that can really, really move you up in the standings. Kevin, obviously in all your travels, uh, you, you certainly have a lot of experience on a lot of different bodies water but let's say for hypothetical purposes you, you know you learn that you have to fish a brand new body of water that you've never seen never put a boat on walk us through from the time that you receive this information and and that you're going to be fishing this how that you break that down and your approach that's probably what i enjoy the most about what i do is i get to fish a lot of places that um that i've either never been to or maybe i've even been there but it's a totally different time of the year and it's been quite a few years since you've been there so you know you want to get as much knowledge as far as what the current conditions of the lake are and today it's really easy to do that i mean you can get on the internet you can um you know you can get a map and you know a lot of people don't even get maps anymore you know with the electronics and stuff that we have with the mapping and and stuff but i i'm still kind of old school and that i really like to to look at a map to see the whole layout of a whole lake especially these big bodies of water we have to fish you know i mean we go to toledo bend you got 150,000 acres of water you got to figure out what pattern that's going to work and what section of the lake you need to be in 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 two and a half days so you know you got to you got to be able to break it down so having a a map to kind of get an overview of the whole place is real important you know you can get some information off the internet that's helpful you know the the lake levels i really try to stay away from getting any local information you know and, and most people it's so easy to do that you know you get on the website or something and find out again you're going to Toledo Bend in March and you know, you read on there, they're just killing them on red eye shads. And, and you go down there and find out that, you know, that was a week ago or two weeks ago. And, you know, that information just isn't current. So I don't like to get information about patterns or lures or things like that. I just want to get information about conditions. And I really want to look at the weather conditions, you know, what's been going through that area and what's supposed to be coming when I'm going to be there, you know, especially you know, the week before you get there, you want to look at that 10-day forecast because that can give me a lot of ideas on, you know, the type of conditions that I might be dealing with, you know, when I get there. And then when you actually get on the water, that's when it really starts to get pretty wild for me. I want to really look close at that water clarity and temperature. and I want to try to come up with a general seasonal pattern, what I think the fish should be doing for that type of body of water, whether it's a river, a reservoir, a natural lake, tidal body of water, whatever, um, for that season of the year. And then start practicing to try to, you know, determine if, if I was correct in my assessment on that seasonal pattern. You know, let the fish tell me what mode they're in. Because it's really easy to say, well, hey, I'm going to go to bull shoals in April and, you know, the fish should be spawning. Well, you know, the, depending on the weather conditions, the moon phase, the water conditions, things like that, well, they may be more fish in pre-spawn or, or actually as warm as it's been this winter. A whole lot of them could have already spawned by then. So I like to let the fish tell me. Um, from my observations when I get there, what, you know, I, I think the seasonal pattern is, and then I'll adjust, you know, my game plan for it. So you can do, you can do quite a bit of work, 
ahead of time, but I, I don't want to get too detailed information. I don't want to get too locked into anything before I get there. I want, you know, the conditions when I get to the lake to tell me the direction that I need to go. You know, I mean, without a doubt, bass fishing is a science that's far from exact. And, and I try to take that scientific approach to it. But that being said, you got to trust your instincts and you got to, you know, fish your strengths and you got to be confident in what you're doing. You know, I mean, the worst thing you can do is go to a place and say, well, hey, you know, they catch them you know, with a drop shot fishing vertical in 50 foot of water, and that's what's going on this time of year. And if you just got no confidence, don't have any idea, have never done that before, it's going to be really hard to be successful. But if, if you go there and you can find something that you're comfortable fishing, a pattern or technique, and you can have some success, a lot of times you can, you know, you can do a lot better at it. That's why you see, you know, guys like Tommy Biffle always seem to find a flipping bite, no matter what time of the year it is or where it. I mean, they, they'll find something that fits their style. And, you know, whether it's him or David Fritz who's cranking or somebody like myself who's a power fisherman, you're going to find something that that you're comfortable with and and confident in when you get there. Well, by far, the question we get the most from our young anglers is young guys asking how they break into professional fishing. Kevin, what advice can you share with that young man or woman who wants to be the next Kevin Van Dam? You know, so many young people that I talk to are so focused on the fishing side of it and they just totally miss the importance of the business side of it and how important getting a good education before they get started and it is towards having a sustainable career in the sport. Um, without a doubt, I think the most valuable tool that you could arm yourself with as a young angler is a, is a marketing degree before you got into the sport. You know, you, yeah, you got to be versatile. You got to, you know, know how to fish different situations and patterns and things like that. And, and there is no substitute for that experience. But guys that are young guys that are sharp and they're, and they're business-minded, you know, they're going to have a much better chance at, at attracting and keeping uh, sponsors, which in this day and age, you just can't compete out there at all. I mean, you just, you've got to have some support from sponsors and, and having a marketing degree and understanding what it takes um, to attract a sponsor and to keep a sponsor is something that, you know, is, is really misunderstood. And, and a lot of people don't put near as much stock in as what they should. So, you know, that, that to me is, is really critical. And I, I, w- I was fortunate that uh, I grew up in a background in the sporting goods industry and had a lot of good contacts. And I really understood a lot about the marketing side of it. And even though I, I never finished my degree in marketing, I have a pretty good uh, knowledge of it. And it's really been one of the most valuable things in my career. Wow. Kevin, uh, speaking of valuable, certainly we sincerely appreciate your transparency. I know all of us are better anglers as a result of, of your thoughts that you shared with us today and and just really a consummate professional. But before we head to break, is there anything else you'd like to share with, with the listeners? Gosh, you know, I mean, I, I just love the sport. To me, the thrill of competitive bass fishing is, is not really catching them. I, I just, I always love just, you know, figuring out what it takes to get them fired up on that day. And people ask me a lot and say, you know, what motivates you? What drives you? Why do you do it? And I don't have to force myself to get up in the morning to get out there. I mean, I, I absolutely love it. And, and that's why I do it. I mean, I do it for the thrill of competition. It's, it's not for sponsorships or the tournament prizes or, or anything like that. But you learn real fast if you truly love it or not, because if you don't, you're not going to put the commitment in, in the effort that it takes. I mean, it's something that uh, is extremely hard. It's no different than any other professional sport. You know, you look at how many kids try 
to make it in the major leagues in baseball or, or in the NBA or the NFL or even play Division One college ball. It's, there's very, very few that ever make it, and it takes a tremendous amount of commitment. And um, that's that's something that you can't really learn. It, you're either born with it or you're not. And and I just, you know, I've definitely been very passionate about it and been really blessed to to be successful at it over you know over these years. And it and it's that passion that keeps me going to this day. Well, Kevin, certainly uh, we we sincerely appreciate all that you do uh, for the sport and us as anglers. And you know, really want to just thank you again. Please be sure to come back and visit with us again here soon on the Edge. Sounds good, guys. At Legend Boats, we have one agenda, to build the finest bass boat on the water. It's our passion. Our hand-laid hulls and zero-tolerance stringer and transom system give you a smooth, dry ride, even in the rough stuff. The Alpha 211 with its massive fishing platform. The Alpha 199, fast and stable. And coming soon, the Alpha 191, a 19-footer with a style, attitude, and a price value all its own. Legend Boats, catch the wave, ride with a legend. Patented in 2000, perfected over years of testing and real-world punishment, the Powerpole is the ultimate shallow-water boat positioning tool. Swift, Powerpole deploys in seconds from anywhere in your boat. Virtually silent, Powerpole won't spook wary fish. Secure in strong currents or gusting winds in up to 8 feet of water. Engineered to take it with a lifetime unconditional replacement guarantee on the spike. Powerpole, swift, silent, secure. Visit Powerpole.com to find a dealer near you. That's a bunch of errors for your old spring fishing quiver right there. I guess everything you ever wanted to know about spring fishing and you asked Kevin Van Dam. That is for sure, and I was really impressed with the answer that he gave for William of Tower Hill, Illinois. And by the way, congratulations, William, for having your question A being submitted, but also being answered on air by Kevin Van Dam. You receive a $25 gift card to BassTackleDepot.com. Speaking of which, Steve, I think if memory serves me right, we're only halfway there. That's right. We've got another gift card to give away. And I've got a question here that is kind of right up your alley, Aaron. It says, hello, my name is Sean Decker, and I live in East Texas. And I've been fishing for a couple years, but with little results. My question is that I don't have a boat to go out in, and I'm usually walking the bank, so I only take one pole. I usually have a swivel with a clip on the end. How does this affect the bait, the way it swims or retrieves back? Thanks. And that's Sean Decker from East Texas. Well, Sean, boy, you bring up a lot of memories there because I can remember growing up fishing farm ponds, you know, walking the shoreline of a, of a river, which was actually the Burbis River close to where I lived, would have to basically grab a, a two-piece pole, fold it in half, grab a little tackle box, and somehow come up with a way to strap that on my bike so that I could get down to the waters that I wanted to fish. But that was a common practice that I always used was that, that clip swivel that you're speaking of. And, you know, to kind of jump forward, forward several years even in today's terms that clip that you're referencing I still use those and I find those to actually be very very effective when using baits such as let's say a, a suspending jerk bait or a wiggle wart because if you notice when those come through or if you're twitching that suspended jerk bait or if you're grinding that wiggle wart across the bottom on those rocks it really intensifies and creates this erratic action in the wobble or uh, how the fish are actually seeing that bait coming through the water so in my mind, it's 
something that I still use that I find very effective. And it's really not just a convenience factor, but it actually does help increase your chances of, of landing that, uh, that bass that you're after. So congratulations, Sean. You also receive a $25 gift card to BassTackleDepot.com. And just a reminder for all the listeners out there, be sure to submit your questions to get those answered on the air and for your chance to win that gift card. Well, that's, uh, that's nice to get to go do a little online shopping for some baits, and that's a great website. If you haven't been on there, you got to go on there. You'll, you'll end up spending more money than your wife. you got to have to hide the credit card. But uh, anyway, we got another great interview coming up, Aaron, and I, honestly, it makes me a little nervous. You know, I get a little nervous around these uh, mental health care professionals. Yeah, I know those uh, those days of therapy kind of bring up some bad memories for me, for you, but uh, <laughs> I, I'm I'm sure Doctor J has things well under control. So let's get to it. Let's uh, let's take a quick break here, and we'll head out to visit with Doctor J. Now you can harness the full power of your boat electronics and catch more fish. Introducing Electronics 101. Whether a beginner or more advanced, leading electronics instructor Mike Webb shows you how to get the most out of any sonar unit. Common problems and frequently asked questions are covered in detail. Electronics 101 also includes bonus deep fishing tips from industry pros. Master any brand graph. Order your DVD by calling 888-390-8780 or online at BassEdge.com. Under the lily pad. In a lake near you, live bass happy and free until one man with a huge resume and immeasurable experience building the finest rods in the world changed everything. Gary Dobbins offers three full lines of tournament-winning rods. The Champion Extreme, Champion, and Savvy Series. Dobbins Rods, when fishing is more than a hobby. Hi, I'm Moses Mokawahi. I'm Sean Hernke. Hi, I'm Jared Littner. Hi, this is Dr. Fish, and you're on The Edge. Returning to The Edge is certainly no stranger. He is an FLW Outdoors contributing writer and author of The Psychology of Exceptional Fishing. Our trusted advisor, Dr. Jay McNamara. Welcome back, my friend. Hey, Aaron. It's good to be back. Yeah, I like how Aaron called you uh, trusted advisor. I've always wondered what it says about the Bass Edge crew that we have a uh, mental health care professional on our team. <laughs> well, we just remember, Steve, nobody in the Bass Edge crew has been hospitalized during the entire time that we've run Bass Edge. So I consider that my main professional accomplishment for the staff. We've all stayed out of the hospital. Oh, that is too funny. Well, Jay, you know, dating back to the early 2000s, you know, you formally, I would say formally, introduced the concept of performance psychology to our sport, meaning the sport of, of competitive fishing. Explain what exactly this is and, and really why it's so important. Well, you know, there are a lot of examples of psychological factors and stress variables coming into play in various tournaments that uh, people have known about anecdotally. Uh, over many years, but bringing that the whole cluster of performance psychology dimensions into competitive fishing, I think makes a lot of sense because it certainly plays out in all other sports. You look at the most recent uh, examples in the Super Bowl, or uh, you look at any other sport that you're playing, and you see where 
nervousness, apprehension, poor stress management causes bad decisions. You see where people that are poised and calm and focused are able to perform at their very best. You think about the kind of focused concentration uh, that it takes to execute at a high level. Those dimensions are important in any sport, and competitive fishing, especially at the highest levels, is definitely uh, an athletic event that requires that type of mental focus. Well, Jay, we just had uh, Kevin Van Dam on, and, uh, you know, I asked him this question about consistency. You know, guys like him that just are kind of – there's a lot of guys that are up there on the at the top every once in a while, but I'd like, just like to hear you address this uh, this idea of consistency. Is it something that you can sort of train yourself to do in, in fishing and well, for the rest of your life, for that matter? Well, absolutely it is, Steve. You know, what people see about Kevin and other top performers is the behavioral consistency. They see Kevin and others like him put five good fish in the boat every day, every tournament, every week, every month, every year, and wonder, geez, why can't I do that? And what they don't see is the kind of consistency that's behind the scenes on that. So you don't see the type of consistency that Kevin puts in with preparing his equipment. As anybody who knows Kevin and other top performers know, they're extremely meticulous about their equipment. Um, what they don't see also is the consistency in the in the psychological dimensions in the very top performers. Consistency in terms of positive attitude, consistency in terms of emotional resilience when mistakes occur, consistency in terms of general organizing and planning and, and uh, learning skills. There's a whole bunch of dimensions of consistency, uh, emotional, psychological, mental, and behavioral, and we really only see the tip of the iceberg there, the behavioral consistency. There's a lot of other kinds of consistency that uh, are beneath the surface that those guys demonstrate as well. Well, Jay, one of the, the things that seemed to be a common theme in Kevin's interview was he was always referring to style, you know, and, and kind of taking assessment and understanding those strengths. And in your book, The, the Psychology of Exceptional Fishing, you lay out specific exercises, you know, one of which is taking personal inventory. And too many times we get into the, the habit of, you know, let's say emulating our favorite professional without fully understanding really our own strengths and limitations. Why is this so important? Well, um, with all due respect to uh, our listeners, um, we're all blind, <laughs> both to our strengths and to our opportunities. There was just recently in one of the psychological uh, journals a study that summarized 50 years of research on people assessing their own capabilities and comparing that to the assessments that others have of their capabilities. And as it turns out, the group is twice as effective as individuals are in laying out uh, strengths and weaknesses. So the correlation between individuals' observations and their personal success was about 2.3, 2.24. The correlations for the um, observations of others was about 0.56. So twice as effective in using feedback from other people to complement and expand and, in many cases, correct our perceptions of ourselves. So when Kevin talks about knowing yourself and knowing your strengths, uh, Kevin's a remarkably open-minded guy. Uh, he's got better self-assessment skills and he's more accurate in assessing his strengths and weaknesses than the average person by far. Most of us would be um, well advised to rely on two or three other people who know us well to give us feedback, especially about domains we don't do well, in order to make genuine improvements. 
Well, you know, Jay, uh, I love to tease Aaron about oh, being boy, the mad, go. <laughs> about the being the mad professor. And gosh, you know, we, we talk to guys like Kevin and we put so much information out there, but I get concerned that sometimes we overcomplicate things. Oh, and by the way, Jay, don't refer to Aaron's journal as a diary. <laughs> He's sensitive about that. But, uh, <laughs> you know, let's talk about the guy that just walks the shoreline of the local lake or farm pond. Talk to us about not letting it be too complicated and enjoying the experience of fishing. Right. Well, you know, the other side of consistency, uh, Steve, is flexibility. And both are extremely important. If you look at last year's classic as a really good example, there were half a dozen guys within, you know, rock-throwing distance of each other (laughs) uh, who were catching all kinds of fish, and they were being very consistent, and Kevin changed it up and switched to a different bait uh, that led him to win the classic, and he made that switch before anybody else did. So when you think about fishing out of your canoe or just walking the bank or whatever, like you said, the most important thing is to not just keep doing the same thing over and over again. You know, most people, when they change, they change the exact spot where they threw their lure, and that's fine. You know, you want to cover water and see where the fish are likely to be, but you also want to have a a variety of other things you can change up as well. The speed of your uh, retrieve, uh, the angle of your retrieve. I can't tell you since I discovered that how many fish I've extra fish I've caught based on just changing the casting angle. Last fall was a good example. We were fishing smallmouth on uh, one of the local rivers here. Uh, we caught about 30 fish off this one spot, and I said, let's go around behind it and see if we can catch some more. And they turned on again. So those kinds of things that the average angler can do. You walk the bank one direction, turn around and walk it back the other way. You think about, uh, you know, fishing from the bank out into deeper water. See if you can't wade out a little bit and fish back towards the shore. Trout fishermen are notorious for doing that. Instead of fishing from the bank to the middle of the river, they walk out in the middle of the river and fish back toward the bank. So if you can do that in your local stream, uh, that's an advantage that most people won't demonstrate. But flexibility, trying different things, that's the key dimension for the average guy. Well, I think that's certainly good stuff. And, you know, just to say, Jay, I I, I do think that uh, Steve is just jealous the fact that I actually have a a journal (laughs) that I've been able to keep track of. But you know what? If that's the only scar I have from therapy, then so be it, because it serves me well. But, yeah, so I digress. Um, I didn't bring up the skin skin care product. (laughs) Okay, all right, all right. You know, back to the book. In Chapter 19, it's titled A Psychological Tackle Box, Mental Lures for All Seasons. You know, we spend so much time organizing, creating, picking out various lures for our regular tackle box. Yet, you know, you kind of break it down from from the mental uh, aspect. Give us some examples of what you mean by creating and organizing a mental tackle box. Well, this is a good time of the year to be talking about that, Aaron, because 50 years of research shows us that people who set specific behavior-based goals are way more likely to be successful than the people that don't. So, you know, it's a new fishing season for all of us. Uh, We've got fishing trips and maybe competitions to look forward to here in the coming season and setting specific goals for how we want to improve. Both outcome goals and uh, skill level goals are extremely important. So, you know, most people say, well, you know, I want to win Angler of the Year in my club this year. Well, that's a good outcome goal, but you don't have complete control over that. If somebody else lights them up during the course of the year, you might fish better than you've ever fished before, but you can still get beat. 
<clears throat> having uh, process goals of how you want to be more effective with a specific technique, like decreasing the number of fish you lose when you're fishing frogs and lily pads, for example, or um, increasing the number of bites that you get in the boat on a drop shot rig and not breaking your line as often and making sure that you retie your knots on a, a light six or eight pound test drop shot rig. Those are the kinds of things you have complete control over and people should have goals about that. The other thing that most everybody should think about is some type of stress management goal. Um, we know from, again, tons and tons of research that it's way easier to uh, stay calm and be prepared for problems to come along so that we cope well with them rather than try and recover from them. It's like, you know, falling down and getting all bruised up. You can recover from that, but you'd be better off not falling down in the first place, right? And so if you can anticipate the kinds of things that have been stressful to you in the past, in past years, in past tournaments, and figure out ways to deal with that before you get into those situations again this year, you'll be way better off rather than trying to get into a situation and get all worked up and then try and calm yourself. A story that I hear over and over and over again is you uh, pull up on your spot in a tournament and there's some other guy sitting there and it makes you aggravated and you lose your focus and you stay mad for the next hour and decrease your efficiency. So developing some strategies for what do you do when you pull up on a spot and there's somebody else there to keep yourself from getting upset is the kind of thing that goes into that psychological tackle box. Well, Jay, isn't, you know, with that being said, going back to what we were kind of joking about before concerning the, the diary or the journal, you know, it, it's important to keep track of that stuff because if you're talking about losing fewer fish in lily pads, you kind of have to have that data to be able to measure to say, okay, did I reach my goal? Is that, would you agree? Absolutely. The whole deal about setting goals all by itself is important, but the most important dimension about figuring out whether goals work or not is behavior-based immediate feedback. And um, you're the only person that can keep track of that. So you absolutely need to keep track of over the course of a day, how many fish did I hook? How many fish did I land? Um, and you need to make some kind of reasonable estimate of that. Now, in the middle of a competition, that's going to be hard to do. But most of the time when we're fishing, it's not competition. It's practice. And we can take along the kind of notebook that you have in your boat, for example, that you'd lay it on the deck there. And when you uh, hook a fish, you make a note of it, how big it was, where it was. And if you wanted to do that just even occasionally, you'd be way better off than you would be if you didn't. You need information in order to make good decisions. Trusting memory of what exactly happened is a bad bet. Well, Jay, per usual, and, you know, I just had to throw that in there just to make my point about uh, about the fishing journal. But, um, you know, as, as usual, you've certainly challenged us to really to take our, our fishing to the next level. But, you know, anything that you want to add before we head out and, uh, and kind of shut this thing down? Well, you know, um, the deal about the uh, psychological tackle box, Aaron, you know, most of us have uh, created a monstrously large collection of tackle over the years, and psychological techniques can be like that, too. You don't have to do nine different things this year, but if you did one thing different this year in terms of being more organized, setting more specific goals, keeping a little bit better track of what you were doing, finding a, a little bit better way to manage the stress and pressures that uh, you run into when you're fishing, you'll be better off. And if you add another one next year and another one the year after that, uh, eventually you'll have the kind of full psychological tackle box that rivals the uh, tackle box full of lures that you have. That's the trick, is to keep adding something, doing something a little bit different, a little bit better each year.
Well, once again, Jay, I just want to thank you for being part of The Edge. Also, want to remind our listeners, really, and congratulations goes out to you for being in the second edition. You know, we kind of went through that, that first edition pretty quickly. And for those of you who are wondering where to be able to find Jay's book, certainly log on to BassEdge.com, The Psychology of Exceptional Fishing. In the meantime, Jay, thanks so much for being part of The Edge and certainly look forward to talking with you again soon. Okay, Aaron, thanks very much. Why did they consistently win? Why did they know about all the latest and greatest baits? BassTackleDepot.com, of course. BassTackleDepot.com is your headquarters for all your bass fishing needs. With over 100 different manufacturers in stock, including Dobbins Rods, Bassaholics Clothing, Boat Bling Cleaning Products, Black Dog, Pepper Baits, Gene LaRue, Jackalure Company, McCoy Line, not to mention a talented staff of hardcore anglers ready to assist your every need. It's no wonder Bass Tackle Depot is where the pros shop. You know the importance of protecting your investments, so why use anything other than the toughest keel protector for your boat? Grinding sand, abrasive rocks, and concrete ramps are no match for our patented technology. Keel Guard keel protectors are made tough and made to stick. Their do-it-yourself installation takes less than an hour, providing the most dependable, most trusted keel protection for your boat, guaranteed for life. So give your boat the performance edge. Put on the protection the pros pick. Keel Guard keel protectors. It's always great to hear from Jay. Always the positive thinker. Although I have to say, I'm a little concerned with his comment about us that at least nobody's been hospitalized yet. (laughs) Yeah, that was a little little odd there. Uh, You know, makes you wonder if there's some kind of underlying motive or if he knows something, you know? He sounds like he's been thinking about it. (laughs) Yeah, you know, Jay always thinks. I mean, that's how he ultimately got the book published and uh, certainly kind of hit the uh, upper ends of of the Bass Edge bestseller, at least. Well, that that's true. And if you haven't read Jay's Psychology of Exceptional Fishing, it's a must for every fisherman's library. It's about time to go, but I thought we might discuss, uh, you know, from time to time we get listeners that point out to us that we use terms and they didn't really quite, you know, what does this mean? And I thought we would maybe take time to discuss one of those terms today, and that is seasonal patterns. Talk to me, Mr. Martin. What are we talking about when we talk about seasonal patterns? Wow, yeah, that is a, that's a topic that, um, as you pointed out, you could write volumes on. But, you know, to me, what that means is the yearly rhythms of where bass are given the time or in relation to the four seasons that's that's really what i think of when we're talking about seasonal patterns yeah and i think in general i mean this is oversimplified but i mean kind of in the winter and the summer they're they're more out in open water maybe deeper water chasing shad for bait and then of course in the spring they're shallow they go into spawn and then again in the fall they tend to follow shad back in into the cove so i guess in a way it's sort of a deep shallow deep shallow thing but uh but then there's those transition it's not that simple i mean there's those transition periods between uh, uh, the winter pattern and the spring pattern and, and the spawning pattern. So uh, in general, that's what we're talking about, seasonal patterns, where the fish are during a certain time of year. Yes, exactly. And, and like I said, um, you know, there's so many times on the podcast that we allude to that. Very good point to bring that up and certainly go back and listen to some of those past 
uh, interviews that we've done, and I think there's a, a lot of good information that can be referenced when dealing with seasonal patterns. But, you know, Steve, unfortunately, believe it or not, we've we've kind of reached our limit here today, and a, and a lot of things to go over. Just a few reminders to to leave you with as we prepare to close this out. One is listener questions. You know, get a lot of inquiries on where to send those in. Just simply log on to BassEdge.com. You can go to the Ask the Pros segment. That'll pop up an email address there for you. Or certainly just uh, click on your email browser and go to info at BassEdge.com. That will get the questions to us as well. Also, want to point out, like us on Facebook. We have the new fan page that is up and running, able to accept that ever-growing number of Bass Edge fans where you can stay on top of all things Bass Edge. We're going to be coming out with some new announcements here in the next few weeks, so be sure and check those out. And then also just want to throw a final recognition out to our uh, some of our media partners that do a very good job of not only letting you know what's going on with Bass Edge, new episodes, those type of things, but really just include a wealth of information on what's going on in other parts of the country. Those would be westernbass.com, basseast.com, texasfishingforum.com and bassboatcentral.com if you haven't checked those out be sure and do so in the meantime i am aaron martin for steve brigman have a great week everybody and be sure to tune us in next month right here on the edge the edge is presented by kill guard kill protector For more information on Bass Edge or to shop at the Bass Edge online store, visit www.bassedge.com. And be sure to be with Steve Brigman and Aaron Martin right here on another episode of The Edge. Brought to you in part by Legend Boats, BassTackleDepot.com, PowerPole, Dobbins Rods, Mercury Outboards, and Rapaholic.com.